Will you go with me to the New uh, Old Testament about halfway over somewhere, a little past maybe halfway, and find the Song of Solomon? We are going to go into a, a kind of an, well, at least maybe, a, maybe not from the pulpit, uh, Song of Solomon. Brother Mike Watkins, I just saw you. I'm so glad to see you. I keep up with you on Facebook all the time. And it's so good to see you in the house of the Lord. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We'll be there in a little while. I'll join you there in a moment. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to read over from uh, uh, Revelation 19 also, if you want to turn there just to find it. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and Revelation 19. We're in an off-changing off world. How many of you know we don't know much about the future? But I do know who holds that future. How many of you are glad you're anchored to something that's eternal? I am so glad that it's eternal. I want to start this morning by speaking not only to those of us here, but especially to those online, YouTube, Facebook, and I, I don't know. I think we're on two or three, four uh, servers. I don't know. I leave all that tech stuff to Dave and Megan. Thank God for people who understand all that. I think most sound systems and, and computers may be demon-possessed. I just... <laughs> <laughs> but thank God for people who know it. I, I just want to say to this generation, and when I mean generation, I don't mean to those just 20 and 30. I mean if you're alive today, you're part of this generation. I want to say to this generation, perhaps some questions that we ask. Why do you preach Jesus? Why do you preach only Jesus? Why do you align yourself with this prophet, Jesus? Because even pagan religions recognize Jesus as a great prophet. Why do you serve only him? I think those are good questions. I think there's a question about what is so dynamic about Jesus that is, lacks luster of any other prophet. What is this that's so special about this Christ that would make him exclusive? And from those questions, I will tell you, I could take scripture and literally preach dozens and dozens and hundreds of sermons about this Christ. Because I want to tell you, this Christ walked all the way from page one in the Old Testament Genesis all the way through Revelation 22. The pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament and then the incarnate Christ when he came, the angels declared it. I could just speak of so many things. But I want to say looking at history and looking at the present and considering the future, I want to declare that only one prophet that ever touched this terrestrial ball, only one king only one priest, only one personality qualifies to supply me an absolute, secured, eternal life. He's the only one. I'm telling you, clearly, he's the only one. 
There are people today who do not want to believe that. They want to believe that there are a dozen or a hundred or a thousand ways. But I want to share with you, whether you think you're right and I'm wrong, or whether you think I'm right and you're wrong, let me tell you, on this question hangs your eternal destiny. What you decide about this man Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. This is one question and one belief system you cannot afford to be wrong on. You cannot afford to miss it. Let me just share with you that this man, Jesus, in answer to the question of every generation, let me declare to you from this pulpit this morning, he was and is and shall forever be deity. He is God. No other prophets were God. There may be some God-inspired. I can show you many of them in the Old Testament, but only this one was deity. So I want you to follow me in a little different direction today, and I want to consider this. In one sense, the Bible is about marriage. I will declare to you that relationships are a premium to the Creator. Isn't it amazing that relationships are so important and Satan sees that they are constantly in need of absolute help? How many families do you know today across this world that live in peace? How many marriages are really the way they should be? How many churches are without scuffling and fussing? How many organizations are just ran in a, in a, in a beautiful manner? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, Satan is here to try to destroy relationships any way he can. And relationship, God is the one who instituted marriage. And I want to tell you the Bible is about marriage in a sense, so follow me. In Eden, the first man and the first woman. In Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Is it not ironic? Have you ever had a thought like this, that God, we, we raise our children, and we think uh, maturity age is 21. Well, let me tell you, it took me a lot longer than that. Thank you for not saying amen. But, but in a sense, we raise them 21 years, and then, isn't it amazing? We, we get here, and it's all about mom and dad and the child, and they meet one person and fall in love, and you get married, and after that moment, it's almost like the whole world changes, and they're tied to that one person. It's as if mom and dad doesn't even count anymore. How many of you know what empty nest syndrome is? I hadn't got over it yet, and it's been over 25 years. I mean, life's about your kids, and it centers around that. It's so important. And then, but, but it's God's way. Marriage. He said, you'll leave them and cleave to your wife. It's about marriage in this way. At the end, it depicts the consummation of all that God has intended as he guided through the course of history with a redeeming hand in terms of a marriage celebration. I want to read it to you. Listen to these words. I'm in Revelation 19. Ladies and gentlemen, God has a bride. It's called the church. How many of you are part of the church? Then our future, I want to read you our future going to read from Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us, how many of you want to be in that crowd? 
And maybe it won't be in that crowd. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Ladies and gentlemen, from Genesis 3, the lamb was talked about. This lamb, this one that will give his life for the Son of God, this lamb has come and his wife, that's us, the church, it was had made herself ready. And to her, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. If you, if you want to just note this, you can drop all the way down to verse 14, and we're mentioned there again. And the armies in heaven clothed in, fi in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Ladies and gentlemen, there's going to be a marriage supper of the church and Christ in heaven. And we're going to, it says, in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's not our works. It's not our righteousness. It is our obedience to him. For righteous works won't get me to heaven, but being obedient to the Father will. Verse 9, then he said to me, John writing the Revelation, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. I declare to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it's important to understand that God is coming for a bride, and I, I love to say this, first time I got married, I was the groom. Next time I get married, I'm going to be the bride. <laughs> what an experience, because I'm going to be his. The Bible's about marriage in this way. All through Scripture, Israel is also considered as Yahweh's bride. He's always tried to have a people that he would perfect and help. Let me just declare to you that the Jews were not God's special people in the sense of prejudice. They were his people in the sense of choice to be the example. And frankly, they've not been a very good example. They wouldn't even receive Christ. Even today, many of them don't receive him as Messiah. But one of these days they're going to. I'm telling you, read the book. But they are bound to him through history as he is to her, Israel, in covenant commitment. And through the, what, 14, 15 covenants of the Old Testament, through the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic covenant, on and on, those covenants, he was with Israel. When you arrive at the New Testament, the Lamb, Jesus, is to signal salvation as the groom. Ladies and gentlemen, it's about a marriage. And Paul, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, was shown that human marriages, the man, the woman, the place of the man, the place of, of the woman, the male and the female, God has a pattern for them, Ephesians 5, and it gives us that pattern. And let me just tell you this, your marriage, my marriage, our marriages are supposed to be a physical picture of our relationship with Christ, our groom. And if it doesn't look like that, we need to make sure it does. Elbow your mate. Listen to the pastor. So I just want to say marriage is important to God. And someday soon, we who were twice born and genuinely saved will be summoned to be united with our Christ as our groom. Ladies and gentlemen, that excites me because I'm a member of the family. In the Song of Solomon... We'll get there now. This is a picture of a wedding. It's, a, it's a, a romance. When you turn to the Song of Solomon, no lustful and destructive mind should travel these passages. 
This is a picture of a righteous love affair between a man and a woman. And it is very, very succinctly written. It's actually written in Latin, what is called uh, canticles. And it is six major, some say poems, but they're actually wedding songs. Six wedding songs. They contain no liturgical or liturgical worship, no statutes or commandments. The Song of Solomon has no hymn of a psalmist, no oracle of a prophet, no vision of a seer. They are love songs, pure and simple. This is Solomon wooing his first wife, the Shunammite and the Shulamite, two different words to spell her, her name or her tribe. Three main characters are involved in the Song of Solomon. Number one, the Shulamite, Shulamite woman. She's the bride. Secondly, the shepherd lad, who is the groom, Solomon. He's also the king. Then there's thirdly, the major group is the women, friends of the bride. They are called in the Song of Solomon, the daughters of Jerusalem. Yes, I know there are brothers and I know there are others. These are just the main characters. Interpreters disagree on how to handle this poem song writings. Some say there's no allegory. Some say there's no typology. Some say there's no dramatic theories. Some say there's no liturgical rites involved. But regardless of the school of interpretation and thought, this romance offering of God in Scripture portrays God's design for marriage. And I believe it portrays a wedding, a wedding feast, a marriage, and a romance. That of Christ and his bride called the church. Ladies and gentlemen, if we follow this pattern in God's design for marriage, we will receive blessing beyond measure, and we will receive reward in the eternal kingdom. To change what God has designed divides, invites disappointment, and I guarantee you it will not turn out right. In chapter 5, the young lady describes her groom to the daughters of Jerusalem. I want you to listen to these words. In Oriental Cemetery, but listen, chapter 5, follow with me if you will. We're going to listen to this little fiance lady. She has been working in the fields. She has been very tanned. Solomon the king is spoiled. He's not been in the sun. He's not tanned. <laughs> the reason I said that, when you read all through this, she talks about how her skin is dark and, and on and on and how his is light. But it's just, listen to a real romance. Chapter 5, verse 8. The lady speaks. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. How many of you have been in love before? How many of you have been foolishly in love? How many of you have been ridiculous in love? Come on, let's just admit it. We get all kinds of messed up. Don't we? Have you ever just looked at human behavior when suddenly they just get in love? They just do things you would never imagine. Isn't that right, Joseph? <laughs> I mean, it's just, just, it's, 
I have several stories I could tell. Better leave it there. So she says, when you see him, tell him I just love him to pieces. Okay? My interpretation. Verse 9. So they ask a question. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? This lady was so in love, she so represented her fiancé that they were saying, what in the world makes you like you are for him? And she answers it. Verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousands. How would you like to get a love letter like this? His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. That describes me quite well. <laughs> His eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. She's talking about his eyes are kind of grayish, greenish, and the whites of his eyes, and they're pretty. She likes his eyes. Verse 13, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping fluid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Isn't it true, gentlemen? <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you ladies have told that to your husband? Well, if you haven't, it's time. And if it's been a while, it's time. Come on, man. Don't you dare miss that opportunity. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And I didn't put this on my plan, so we won't have the video, but I just want to tell you, these, this young lady so described her man, her fiance, her lover, that she so overwhelmed the daughters of Jerusalem. And they so, she so described him, every one of them wanted him for their own. And I want to tell you something. You and I should live and we should describe him, and we should love him, and we should adore him, and we should be madly in love and describe him every day so that everyone that does not know him wants to know him in a loving relationship. That's my assignment, and that's your assignment. Listen to what they, listen to what they said, verse 1 of, of 7. Where is your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? How are we doing? The beauty... And the loveliness of our Christ is because he is the son of God. He is the redeemer of the souls. And thank God, the promise is, he is our soon coming king. But this morning, I want to totally turn to a different thought about his loveliness. I want to talk to you about, in a very simple way, about why I love Jesus. 
Why do I love this lovely Savior? Oh, my goodness. Again, hundreds of sermons. But in order that we might enjoy salvation, I want to take you down a journey about why I love Jesus. Why I so love Jesus. Why I so love Jesus that I am not ashamed of his name, nor his word, nor his book. I so love Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Get this, because of the withdrawals he made. Pastor, what are you talking about? Here they are. I love him because, first of all, he withdrew himself from heaven for me and for you. It underscores his humility. He was the king of heaven. He was the beloved of the Father. He was the second person of the Trinity. He, was, he it was that made all things. He spoke it into being. He is the one who ordered all things. He ruled all things. He controlled the entire universe. This is the one with the sovereign power of all creation. He sat in the highest of places. And yet for your sake and for my sake, saint or sinner, he withdrew from it all for you and me. In his humiliation, he is in my heart altogether beautiful. I love what he was when he laid aside his kingly robe. I love the scene of him placing the scepter aside. I love the fact that he wrapped himself in humility. How lovely, ladies and gentlemen, was the scene when he left that eternal throne of God walking toward my lost soul. How lovely was it when he bid farewell to the Father? And for that, I declare, ladies and gentlemen, to me, he is altogether lovely, and I love him with everything in me. Amen. Secondly, he withdrew into the flesh. I'm not sure that we fully appreciate what Jesus did when he became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you have any idea how ugly sin is to God? Do you have any idea how ruthless sin is? And we see its ruin all the time. We are constantly dealing with those who return from sin, the prodigals. And ladies and gentlemen, every week I deal with a prodigal. Every week I get phone calls. Every week I have visits with those who tried the far country. And I want to say to you, if you're online today and you live in the far country, there will come a time, there will come a time when you must deal with, what, with God within yourself. I don't know if we appreciate it. Our Lord took into his deity a union of our flesh forever. And the truth is, once he came, he will never be the same. He changed his eternal deity into the likeness and a relationship with you and me. I want you to think about that. Because when he turned himself into human flesh, it was not beautiful. For sin had taken its toll 
and through 4,000 plus years of those covenants. Yet because he took into his deity our humanity, I thank God he is the God-man and I should be and you should be thankful, ladies and gentlemen, for he was tempted in all manner of sin and yet without spot or wrinkle. I want to tell you something, lost soul. Those of you who struggle for who's right and who's wrong, I want to share this with you. Every day, every moment, every day, there is one on the throne who relates to me and to you. I can't touch God on my own, but ladies and gentlemen, through Christ, I can touch him. And in his God incarnate flesh, I consider Christ absolutely lovely. John said, we touched him. He said, our eyes beheld him. John said, we walked with him. And I want to declare to you, he was, he is, and he shall forever be God. But he identified with fallen humanity. Thirdly, he withdrew from personal war to personally war with the devil. Pastor, what are you talking about? Listen. Jesus Christ did not need to war with the devil. Let me tell you, he is omnipotence. He is authority. Jesus Christ could have destroyed Satan with one word from his lips. With the authority, he could have put him beside, behind him for eternity. But he chose for your sake and for my sake to enter into temptation, subject himself to this dark devil submitted into combat and to battle with him in order to deliver us from the devil's fiery darts and the snare of the fowler and the sinful flesh which so imprisoned us. In humility, ladies and gentlemen, coming from heaven, I love him. In his incarnation, I love him. He is lovely in his temptation. Think of it, think of it. He's lovely in his temptation. The eternal son of God humiliating himself to be tempted of the devil, to stand to the slanders of hell, and he did it all for you and for me. And this morning, I will stand on what? August 1, 2021 and say, I love him because he identified to fight the devil. Amen. Number four, I love him because he withdrew from isolation with the eternal elite. Pastor, what are you talking about? He left the elite of heaven to identify with sinners. The scripture says he came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That love that Jesus had for me, I will tell you is more than tongue can tell. That Jesus that so loved me, my heart cannot express. The old Puritan, quote, the only qualification necessary to meet him is to know that you're a fallen, undeserving sinner. You say, Pastor, what do I have to do if you're online? What do I have to do to be saved? Just admit you're a sinner. Admit he's the Savior. Ask him to come in your life and you'll be a change forever. Amen? 
He cannot save good people. Can't save moral people. Can't save nice people. Can't save well-meaning people. But he can save from the darkness of damnation the sinner who calls on him and says, I need a savior. He is lovely. Ladies and gentlemen, he is lovely. When he kneels beside the man, the woman, the child with a sin debt and touches them with eternal salvation. I was five years old in First Assembly of God Church in a place called Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, about 100 miles south of here or so. Back then, the altars were one before slats, and but I remember one morning. I was a sinner. I knew it. Nobody had to tell me. I may have been five years old, but I'd already stolen a piece of chalk out of the Sunday school classroom. you did that and that's all I'm going to say <laughs> but he knelt beside me and said I'll give you eternal life and he's been walking with me ever since and he looks at me in mercy and he looks at me in grace and every time I get knocked off my feet he stands that five year old boy up and he said, let's go on. He's my friend. And I love him. Number five, he withdrew from an immunity from suffering. Jesus, as deity, could not suffer because he was sovereign. But in order to bear my pain and your pain, he would robe himself in human flesh and say to the Father, I will be humiliated, I will be rejected, I will be scorned, I will go, I will suffer. I will tie my deity to sinful humanity. And as a God-man, he said, I will hang upon a cross and die a sinner's death. I remember a song years ago, it said, oh, the wonder, oh, the wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, his propitiation, his substitute, his representing me on dark Calvary where he bore the pain of every sickness and every disease. Ladies and gentlemen, based on that, we can not only be saved from our sin, God can heal the human body. He is lovely in all the robes in which he appears. But the red robe of Calvary, ladies and gentlemen, is the best. And when he returns, he will wear that vesture. The scripture says, dipped in blood, he will return as he will come. And I want you to know, I think he is altogether lovely. Number six, I love him because he withdrew himself from immunity, from death. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus die on Calvary? Absolutely. He went through the tomb. But what really died on Calvary, hear me, I'll be through. What really died on Calvary was death. Death died at Calvary. And he took the keys to death in the grave. And I was five years old and I was in prison. 
I wanted to get out, but I couldn't find the keys. But Jesus had the keys, and he set me free. Souls in danger, look above. When I used to sing it as a kid, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He, your Savior, wants to be. Be saved today. Love will lift you. The love of God will woo you. It will draw you. It will romance you. Listen to this lady describe this lover. And that's the way God will woo you. But one final withdrawal, perhaps the greatest of it all. He withdrew from solitary glory. Think of this. He had solitary glory with the Father in his eternal past. Nothing could rival his place, his position, his glory. But I want to declare to you, it will not be solitary glory in heaven. I started with this. I'm going to end with it. He will say to God, as he did in his priestly prayer in John 17, God, Father, I want you to bring these believers in that they may be one with you and me and share my glory. How much of it do we deserve? How much of the glory of purity and holiness do we deserve? And ladies and gentlemen, yet without any equivocation. So I'm going to end with this, at least close to ending. Sitting with Christ in heaven is my future. <laughs> Books, are you serious? How many of you know that you know that you know your sins are under the blood? Do you know your future is sitting beside the Son and share His glory? So next time you get frightened by the news and next time you're afraid they're going to all blow it up and the economy's going to fall and all those kind of things, look up, your redemption draweth nigh. Ladies and gentlemen, one of these days we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And I'm staking my life in eternity on that because I know it's true. Some folks say, well, Pastor, there's so many millions of saints and so many through the years and generations that we'll see Christ when we get there and we may never see him again for a long time. And I just want to tell you something. Nonsense, I'm going to sit with him <laughs> at the throne of God. Preacher, you may, you're thinking too highly of yourself. No, I'm thinking highly of him. And it all belongs to his glory. If you want to know today online, if you don't know the Lord, you want to know why we teach Jesus and why he's the only one. It's because he's the only prophet that came from heaven. He's the only prophet that spoke directly to God himself. He's the only one that left that splendor and came and identified with humanity in the darkness of sin. He's the only one who bled and died for me and for you. He's the only one who paid the price. 
He's the only one that was in covenant with God. He's the only one that defeated death. I heard a story the other day about a pastor who was on a plane. And he happened to be on there with a a person that follows the Muslim belief. And he started a conversation and asked him what he believed and the conversation came something along this line. Well, I served Jesus, he was a prophet and the man said, we believe Jesus was a prophet. And he said, well, my prophet, I serve Jesus is different than all the other prophets. And he said, how so? And so the pastor asked this guy, he said, where was Jesus buried? Where is he? Where's his grave? And he went, I don't know. Well, they know where Muhammad's buried, don't they? They know where all the other prophets are buried. You know why they don't know where Jesus is buried? It's because he's alive, that's why. He came out of the grave. He's the only one that did. He's the only one that conquered death. And he's the only one I'm going to trust for my eternity. And in all these things, he is altogether lovely to me. I will serve no one else. I will bow to no one else. I will follow no one else. And on this, ladies and gentlemen, I am certain about my eternity. I want to look you in the eye today and to those of you online. If you do not know this altogether lovely Jesus, I know we may push him out and we may ridicule him. And now they've said, get out of our schools, take your book and prayer. And now people say this book's archaic and it's out of date. And let me tell you, there is no book as up to date as this book is every day because we're stepping right through its prophecies at this very moment. And I'm just about to put on my wedding garment. Clean, white linen to ride with the king. How much of that do I deserve? Absolutely none. But I'm going to be present and accounted for.